Hey, hey, home to her listeners. I'm popping on here to give you a heads up about something that is very near and dear to my heart. And that is the launch of the Home to Her Academy. When I was first looking for education about the sacred feminine, I felt that I most often found information that was either really academic or it seemed to be purely experiential in nature. And that was really subjective to the individual who was leading that education. Well, I wanted it all. I wanted to know the her story and the mythology in an accessible way. I wanted to learn from a lot of different people. I wanted to know how this information could live in my body and in my bones. And I wanted it to be practical and applicable to my daily life. So that is exactly what I have set out to do with the Home to Her Academy. My dream is to bring together qualified, really engaging instructors who can teach us about the sacred feminine in ways that are rooted in the historical record, but also embodied and intuitive that are intersectional. So addressing head on this really messy entanglement of spirituality with patriarchy, misogyny, racism, colonialism, et cetera, and in ways that are practical. So meaning that we can apply to the, apply this to our real, ordinary, complicated lives. I am launching the Home to Her Academy with a class that I will be teaching called Home to Her Story, Home to Your Story, which kicks off Sunday, September 10th. And I've been working on this class for years. I'm so excited to have it out there. It is my spin on an introduction to the Her Story of the Sacred Feminine with an eye specifically toward helping you understand what all this has to do with you and your life. So we will talk about the Her Story in a way that I promise will not be boring, we will move and flow and practice feeling sacred feminine wisdom in our bodies in each class. And my favorite part is the creative writing portion, which will invite us to practice spelling the world we want into being via storytelling exercises, which I have found to be very powerful in my own life. This is a six-week live class that kicks off Sunday, September 10th, and we will meet on Sunday afternoons, Eastern time. And all the classes will be recorded and available later if you can't join them live. So please go check out hometoheracademy.com and this first class, Home to Her Story, Home to Your Story. This is just the first class of what will be many more to come. I've been crazy busy collaborating with other instructors and building out a curriculum that makes my heart super happy. And I so hope it will speak to you too. And if you're not already, please sign up for my newsletter on the site at hometoheracademy.com. You can also do it at hometoher.com. Those sites are linked. So you can stay informed of all the latest courses as they become available. And as always, thank you so much for being here and thank you for supporting my work. It means the world. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is Liz joining you as usual from Central Virginia and the ancestral lands of the Monica Nation, a federally recognized tribe with headquarters that are not very far from me. 
And if you want to know whose lands you're residing on, um, as always, you can check out native-land.ca. And I always put this in the show notes, but I'm um, starting with this episode. I'm putting a link to an organization called the Coalition of Natives and Allies as well. Uh, CNA was founded by one of my prior podcast guests, Arla Patch, who also happens to be the cover artist for my book, which is pretty cool. I'll mention that in a second. Um, but this is a coalition of indigenous women and white allies, and they have a lot of really good resources on their website. So um, go check out the uh, the show notes and um, see what you can learn. And as always, I got to give you guys a little plug for my book, Home to Her, Walking the Transformative Path of the Sacred Feminine is available now from Womancraft Publishing. Um, whether you are new to this exploration of the sacred feminine and are looking for more information, or you've been on this path for a while and maybe you want to take a deeper dive into her history and some of the spiritual attributes associated with her, um, check it out. It is a 2023 Nautilus Gold Award winner. Yay! Pretty exciting for me. Oh, I'm getting snaps from my, you can hear my, uh, my guest there. Uh, Nautilus Awards honor books that promote sustainability, conscious living, and spiritual growth. And some of my favorite authors have received these in the past, including our guest today. So um, I feel really proud to be in good company. Uh, you can order my book from Womancraft. You can order it. You can get it wherever you want to get it. But I, I love to tell you to think about ordering it from Womancraft Publishing, which is an amazing independent woman-owned publisher, or go get it from your favorite local independent bookstore. And as always, I am grateful for reviews. Uh, reviews on Amazon and Goodreads are super helpful for other people to find the book. And the same goes for this podcast. I really appreciate your favorable reviews. Uh, anywhere you want to leave them is awesome, but um, iTunes and Apple Podcasts in particular are great to have. And um, as always, your feedback is welcome. And you know what? I feel like you guys are really hearing me on this because I've definitely had more people reach out to me directly with feedback and input and reflections. And I so appreciate your taking the time to do that. It helps me think about um, different aspects of things that we're talking about here. And it, it's nice to know that you're out there listening. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And always feel free to reach out to me via social channels. And I will put that in the show notes as well. Okay, so let's get on to the main event. I am really honored to have my guest on today. I have known about her and followed her work for years, um, and I'm thrilled that she's with me to speak about it. So let me go ahead and introduce her to you now. Nina Simons is co-founder and chief relationship officer at Bioneers, an innovative nonprofit organization that highlights breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet. She also leads its Every Woman's Leadership Program. Throughout her career spanning the nonprofit, social entrepreneurship, corporate, and philanthropic sectors, Nina has worked with nearly a thousand diverse women leaders across disciplines, race, class, age, and orientation to create conditions for mutual learning, trust, and leadership development. She co-edited Moonrise, The Power of Women Leading from the Heart, and authored the book Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, A Woman Listens for Leadership, released as a second edition in 2022 with an accompanying discussion guide and embodied practice practices. The first edition won Nautilus Awards in the categories of women in the 21st century and social change and social justice. And both books are being used to inspire and ignite learning in individual circles and classrooms. Nina is joining us today from near the mountains outside Santa Fe, New Mexico. Nina, thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to have you with me. 
Liz, it's an honor to be here with you, and I should say I'm joining you from the ancestral homelands of the Tewa, Tiwa, and Keres-speaking people, also known as the Pueblo peoples, and um, I'm very grateful to be here. Mm. feels like finding a sister in purpose and mission. Oh, I felt that way so much too, just reading your book too. So that's the first thing I want to say is listeners, check out this book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, A Woman Listens for Leadership. It is um, beautiful. It is it is profound. It is um, mature in the best possible way, grounded spirituality. And I think it is it's deeply intersectional work. And so I just, um, I, I, my copy is <laughs> very dog-eared and underlined, and um, I highly, highly recommend it to everyone who's listening. And I know we're going to talk about it and get into some of the themes in it for sure. But um, Nina, where I usually like to start with guests is to get a little bit of your spiritual background. And I always ask that because I'm curious, first of all. And second, I love to hear where people started and, uh, you know, compared to where they are now, was there anything useful that sort of pointed you in the right direction or did you have to, to reorient or what was that like for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, okay, let's see. Well, I grew up in New York City and I was the daughter, I am the daughter of uh, two people of Jewish descent but I was raised without any religious background, but simply with a cultural orientation that said, leave the world a better place than when you arrive. And uh, what I had noticed early on in my childhood was that nature was where I went for solace. And my parents were really agnostic, didn't practice any kind of specific spirituality. Um, but when I was in need of solace, when when my emotional life was turbulent, I went to the park or I went to nature. And so in many ways, I think that has led me to where I am today, where I believe that nature or what I call mother life is really as close. It's what I hold sacred. It's what I believe is the divine. And so it's my version of the divine feminine is life all around us. Um, along the way, I had the opportunity to study with a spiritual school in my 20s called Arika that was created by a Bolivian mystic uh, named Oscar Chazo. And he had traveled the world and really created a school for consciousness that brought together aspects of many of the world's great traditions and religions. And um, so I learned a lot of tools there, which I've always been grateful for, perhaps the most important of which was not only to learn to sort of to meditate and how important diet and my inner world was, but also to be able to witness myself without being totally identified with everything that I felt or believed or experienced. Um, and since that time, I've had a very eclectic spiritual uh, training, and I've uh, learned a great deal from indigenous mentors. I so appreciated your opening, Liz. Thank you for that. And um, and also, I've, I've been studying... Um, from some of the world's great wisdom traditions, from uh, Buddhism a lot, 
and from Sufism and Hinduism. And I sort of, you know, I learn and glean from anything that feels useful. And uh, it's always interesting to me to see how the spiritual truths that I'm learning um, are applicable to the natural world and um, how they relate. So, I mean, in many ways, you know, I am an eclectic studier of many things, and I feel like I'm a systems student overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Including, I've studied astrology for many, many years. Okay. Well, and I was going to ask you, you, what do you mean by a systems student? Can you expand on on that? Sure, sure. Well, part of what I learned in Eureka was the Enneagram. And so the Enneagram is this beautiful nine-pointed star. And really, it describes the whole arc of human behavior. And what I learned during that time of study was that there tends to be one place where we get stuck somewhere in early childhood. And that stuck place tends to be like habit forming. It's a place where our psychology develops around, but we all contain all nine of them within us. And similarly, astrology, of course, with the zodiac and the 12 signs and understanding some of the symbology of the planets, Um, I'm increasingly believing that we are a part of a conscious cosmos and that there is consciousness not only in human beings, but, you know, scientists are discovering now that plants can uh, perceive color. And it used to be that they thought that, you know, they would describe animal intelligence um, by being whether an animal could uh, identify itself in a mirror it turns out all kinds of animals can identify themselves in a mirror and slime mold can find its way through a maze. So what is intelligence anyway? And uh, so I'm intrigued by both the visible world and the invisible world. And I think astrology speaks to me about uh, it's like understanding the weather system. You know, wouldn't you want to know if it's likely to rain on a day when you're going out or if it's going to be over 100 degrees. Um, and I feel like that's what I look to astrology for, is to get a sense of the energetic weather that I'm stepping into. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that perspective. I also love the Enneagram. I know there are so many different tools that are out there, and that's one that's definitely resonated for me. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm grateful for what you said about astrology, too. I, I'm guessing listeners here, are, you, you may be more open to uh astrological insights perhaps than other folks potentially, but, um, I, it's such a deep and profound system and everybody that I've known that has worked very closely with it, just the level of, um, scientific and mathematical understanding that you have to have, it's just far deeper than, you know, reading three lines in a, in a newspaper or a magazine. So, uh, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah, the other thing that I would add is that there's a realm of astrology called world transits. And my husband and partner actually made a 10-part series that you can see online called Changing of the Gods. And it's about how the planet's relationship to each other affects events on Earth. And historically, it was was inspired by a book... um, called Cosmos and Psyche by Richard Tarnas, who was a a historian who mapped 
the events of human history and how and whether they correlated to movements of the outer planets in relation to each other. And he found incredible correlations. And so the series is something that I would highly recommend to anyone. It's wonderful. Well, thank you for making that connection for me because I did watch that series. And so now oh. I... I <laughs> I did not realize that you had a connection to the creator. So that's pretty great. Um, I will definitely put that in the show notes for everybody because I agree it was wonderful. Um, awesome. Okay. So next question for you, and I think you have alluded to this a little bit, but I want to ask you about um, the divine feminine. And I know that you mentioned that uh, mother life, this this relationship with nature is is how you know and understand that. I am curious if there was a particular point in your journey when you became aware of the feminine aspect of the divine. And if you prefer divine feminine, sacred feminine, goddess, mother life, whatever language you want, you feel free to use that. Thank you. There was a particular moment that was an epiphany for me. And it was soon after my father had died very suddenly of a heart attack. And I was brokenhearted. And I went to visit a friend who had a video shop. And uh, she said, I'm going to lend you this video because and I won't charge you because I think it's so important that everyone needs to see it. And it's uh, an hour long film that was made in the early 90s. And it's available online. It's called The Burning Times. And uh, when I took that video home, it blew my mind. Um, it was the first time that I had ever understood certain things about myself that I had noticed, but never, never understood the root causes of, like my fear of speaking my truth in public. And... Uh, and the more I saw it, and I was kind of jaw-dropped because I thought, how can this monumental event in human history, which occurred over about 300 years throughout Europe and in many other nations, had correlative um, sort of cultural movements, uh, how can this have happened and not, how can I not have learned about this in school? It's so huge. And... And then it set me on a course of research. And really, I think up until that point, I had kind of imagined that I was stepping into my adult life on a level playing field in terms of gender equity. And But my life had been showing me that that wasn't really true. My life had been you know, bringing me experiences of being the only woman in a board meeting and coming up with good ideas and having them fall on deaf ears and, you know, the the kind of implicit bias that I think every one of us probably in a female body has experienced in our own ways. And when I saw The Burning Times, I, it set me on an inquiry of research and I had to understand how much of it was true and whether there were other societal ramifications of this time that I, that I could help me understand it. And what I learned um, was that at the beginning of the burning times, women owned more wealth in Europe than men. And by the end of the burning times, there'd been this huge transfer of wealth. Um, at the beginning of the burning times, women were the healers and the herbalists and the midwives and the death doulas. And by the end of the burning times, uh, only men were allowed to 
into medical school and you had to have a medical degree to practice medicine. So, and the women who were all those healers were among the first to be persecuted and tortured and burned for the supposed crime of being witches. Um, yet the beginning of the burning times, religion and spirituality was something that people experienced directly through rituals, seasonal rituals, more like what we think of as paganism. And there was a direct experience of the divine and the sacred that was open to anyone. And by the end of the burning times, you had to go to church to have an experience of the divine, and it had to be mediated through a priest. And so, and even our relationship to land changed. So at the beginning of the burning times, land was held communally and shared as a resource. And by the end of the burning times, um, there was something called the enclosure movement and land had become privatized. And so, you know, what I realized was that seven generations of children witnessed all the women in their lives, their mothers and sisters and aunties and grandmothers, uh, become systematically tortured and burned for the supposed crime of being witches. And what I've come to believe since then, so that that was just huge for me. And I had already been co-leading this organization called Bioneers for several years. And what happened for me was that Bioneers is all about solutions to all of our most pressing environmental and social challenges. And what I began to understand was that everything we were facing could be seen as the imbalance of the masculine and the feminine, not only in terms of our embodied forms and how women weren't in the C-suite and weren't getting the same opportunities or equity as men, but also in terms of the, the ideas and the principles that we associate with the masculine and the feminine. Um, and in many ways, you know, some may call it the divine feminine. I think we've inherited some pretty twisted definitions of the masculine and feminine. Mm. But, uh, you know, so there's as much unpacking and unlearning to do as there is new learning to, to embrace. But what I found was that everything associated with the feminine, meaning our emotionality, our empathy, our compassionate natures, our ability to multitask, um, our way of sharing authority and being mindful of the context of everything we were dealing with, but particularly a focus on relationship. Everything associated with the feminine had been systematically devalued in our mainstream culture. And everything associated with a, quote, masculine, like action and goal orientation and productivity and upward versus downward and light versus dark and hierarchy and results, all of that had been elevated. Um, and so I began to understand that everything we face can be seen as an imbalance of the masculine and the feminine. And in that way, what happened as a result of that was that I became fascinated with how my experience as a woman had uh, limited or expanded my sense of my possibilities, how it had affected my, my relationship to myself and the world. And also, I became a huge advocate for women and for what I called restoring the feminine, because 
You know, many indigenous people and the Baha'i faith actually say that the bird of humanity has been trying for too long to fly on only one wing. And until the wing of the feminine is fully engaged and fully balanced, um, we will not achieve our full human potential. So that was kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but it was a, that was my experience. <laughs> it's a, a wonderful answer. And I wanted to share two things that came up when you mentioned the burning times. And the first was, um, I saw that film as a young graduate student and, mm. um, I took a gendered communications course in grad school and um, it was so shocking to me that, and at the time I was in a relationship with a man who was Catholic and carried a very um, kind of borderline macho, but paternal sort of energy. Like I got this, I'm going to take care of this, which Mm -hmm. at that time in my life was comforting for me because I didn't grow up with that as a father. So I, I, it appealed to me. But also not particularly open to ideas that were outside of what he thought was right and wrong. And so I remember that film being so very disruptive to me that I I immediately saw it and was like, this is horrifying information. I can barely process this. And if I were to share this with my family of origin or my boyfriend, I would lose them. And even though I was in graduate school with strong female friends that I could talk about this with, for whatever reason, my perception of culture being able Mm. to accept me if I were to bring this forward as something that was profoundly affecting me, my perception was that I would lose. I would lose my culture. I would lose my family. I would lose love. And so I I just shoved it all deep down, kind of forgot about that movie. And I didn't Mm. really think about it for quite a while until I got called onto this divine feminine path. And then I could look Mm. back and see, ah, she's actually been calling me since my early twenties. I just wasn't, I wasn't in the place to receive and open to it um, until I was, you know, I needed to be, in my case, I needed to literally be in a different city, which was the Bay area of California, which was very (laughs) open and receptive for me. I needed a lot of things in my life to shift. I needed that man to not be in my life anymore, but, um, you know, it was, it was really jarring. And the other thing that I want to mention about the burning times, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can look up this movie, but I remember reading later that there was a lot of controversy about this, the statistics that were used to quote, the number of women that died during that time period. And this, I think, is a common thing that happens to women's research. It is meticulously pulled apart. And if you find even one thing that you think is wobbly, the whole the whole thing gets thrown out. It's such a, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. But what yeah. I wanted to name is that even, even it, I, to me, the numbers, whether they're in the hundreds of thousands or the millions, doesn't matter. I will yeah. give you an example of... Um, Earlier this year, there was an active shooter on the campus of University of Virginia. I live 10 miles outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, and my children go to school in the city of Charlottesville. The entire town was on lockdown until they found the shooter. The the entire school, Mm. University of Virginia, all of these students, 30,000 of them, or however many are there, are getting text messages that say, run, fight, hide for hours. They can't leave their buildings. My children can't go to school. Every building, every office was shut down. And in the end, three people, three people were killed. And so you see the impact that the trauma that spills out 
it doesn't, the, the number of people that died is horrible, but the number of people that are impacted by these acts of violence, we cannot reduce it to just a, a simple life and death like body count because it's so much bigger than that. And so I don't know if that helps to bring into perspective what you were saying about seven generations. And even now to this day, you know, and probably many of us who have been anywhere near where there's been an active shooter situation, we walk into public spaces, looking over our shoulders, checking for exits, trying to figure out where we're going to go. Is it safe to be in the space? So that's all that's to say that it, it, it was a big deal. It, and, and especially for people that didn't process the trauma, it just gets passed yeah. down and passed down and passed down. Well, exactly. And you know, what's what's been fascinating to me, Liz, is I've lived the question for a long time, why is patriarchy so entrenched? And it's a, it's a big question because the degree of implicit bias and the, the difficulty in, in getting the ERA passed in all kinds of things, you know, um, is evidence of just how entrenched it is. And science has now proven, um, what's called epigenetic trauma, which is that our DNA actually carries the trauma of our ancestors. And when you really feel into that and understand that we all have ancestors who lived through some aspect and some version of the burning times, that, wow, no wonder, no wonder we as women tend to doubt our own capacities and make ourselves small because it's not safe to show up in all our full flourishing. And, you know, and yet we must, and we're called to. So, and thank heavens we live in a time where it's safer to do that than it was then. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think so many of us still feel like we're climbing over that mountain of fear just to open our voices. And I, I, you know, I wonder if you might be willing to reflect on that, because I feel like you speak to that in your book, um, uh, you know, about finding your voice and and standing up and using it. Do you feel like it's gotten easier over time? And is it is it something that practice makes it easier or spiritual practice? Like, how is that? How's that evolved for you? You know, Liz, this is what I love about the title of your book and your podcast, mm. because I loved thinking in anticipation about this, of what does coming home to myself mean and how yeah. has it happened? Um, really, I think since seeing the burning times, which was nearly 30 years ago, I have been through a long process of self-reflection and self-practice and self-cultivation. You know, for about 20 years, I co-facilitated gatherings for women called Cultivating Women's Leadership. And a lot of what we focused on was to unearth the story of what lies within, including the burning times and how its legacy affects us. But also, what are the belief systems and the self-limiting ideas that we may have unconsciously accumulated that we can consciously shed. And I feel like, you know, part of why I wrote this book and part of why I wrote the discussion guides and the embodied practices was so that anyone who picks it up can follow any part of my breadcrumb trail that can serve them. Because really, it's been practice. I feel like, 
in many ways, the biggest lesson is, you know, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. How do you get to be a fully liberated in your, you know, uh, fullness woman? Uh, how do you come home to yourself where you practice? And a lot of that was, you know, really noticing that when I got out of the shower in the morning, I would look in the mirror and have all these negative voices go off in my head about my body. And, you know, this is too fat and that's too round and I should be more, you know, all the things that we all have. And I realized, oh my gosh, I'm doing violence to myself every single day. So how do I change that? Well, I created a ritual and, you know, I have, um, I had a spiritual trainer, a spiritual mentor who gifted me at the end of a very long ritual uh, with about 50 other people. He gifted us all with nine words of spiritual advisement. The nine words are <laughs> consciousness creates matter. Language creates reality. Ritual creates relationship. And when I heard that, all three of those phrases really landed in me. But the one that I uh, wrapped my heart around the most was ritual creates relationship. Because I knew that all those negative voices were a reflection of my inner relationship to myself. And they were what was keeping me from self-acceptance, from self-love, from believing in myself wholeheartedly. And so I created a ritual um, where I put together a skin oil with some essential oils that I love the scent of. And every morning, it only takes three or four minutes, I would anoint my body with this scented oil. And as I did so, I poured love and gratitude into my body. And what I learned from doing rituals as a form of practice is that they can be very simple and we're all capable of making them up. But when you do them every single day and hold yourself accountable to doing them over and over and over again, somewhere around six or eight weeks, something changes in your inner relationship, in my inner relationship. So I have, over time, really transformed my relationship to myself and my relationship to my husband, who at one point was a mentor, and I always compared myself to him. I had to, I had to shed and compost the habit of comparing myself with men, with other women, and compare myself only to myself. And in that way, I think I cultivated myself over a long period of time into who I felt my soul brought me here to be. And I want that for every woman alive on earth today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I love the thought of, um, I'm just thinking about turning, you can turn anything into ritual. You know, you can bring yeah. meaning into anything. And yeah. so I'm thinking of the healing, the healing possibilities available for us and our beings. And then to your point about ritual creating relationship, it also deepens relationship to the world around you. And to yes. like, I have a little, a little, well, when I'm with it enough, which, you know, doesn't happen every day, but, um, you know, I have a little blessing that I put in the, I, I drink like a morning blend of mushroom tea type thing. And I have a little blessing that I put into it when I make it. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
Uh, and so I, and that blessing has to do with the relationship that I have to the beings that were involved in yeah. bringing that drink to me. Um, and so, and so I'm thinking of that too, is like the whole ritual becoming yeah. a relationship, not just with self, but with all of these other amazing beings that we share the planet with too. Exactly. And how do we cultivate a deepening of our relational intelligence? Which means, you know, how, I mean, at one point, we had the worst wildfire in New Mexico's history last year. Mm -hmm. And at one point, it came too close to our home, which is right at the edge of a national forest. And I reached out to a friend and asked if she could teach me something that could help me protect my home. And she did. And she taught me a ritual to do with a tree. And it has to do with, you know, it connects with consciousness creates matter, right? And mm. every, every day I went out during the fire and I put flowers around the base of the trunk of the tree and I poured water around the base and I sent my gratitude and my prayers and my asking for forgiveness down into its her roots and up through her branches to the sky people and to the mountain nearby. And it sure made me feel better. Mm -hmm. And our home didn't burn and the fire eventually was put out. But, you know, it deepened my relationship with this land that holds us. And I think it's certainly part of what the earth or mother life is asking of us now is how do we deepen our relationship with all of life around us? Mm -hmm. And certainly the indigenous allies we have are teaching us the same thing. They're all pointing in the same direction. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, let's see if I can get this thought out, but I guess I was thinking about um, technology and um, all the systems that we've created to surround us and support us and that uh, are ultimately designed to keep us comfortable and in a place of stasis or, or, or perpetual growth, right? It's one or the other, right? We're just comfortable. We're just kind of trying to wrap ourselves up in a cozy blanket. So nothing bad ever happens. And I'm thinking of that in um, conjunction with the same religious systems that we were talking about that pulled all of the wisdom out of individuals and out of their relationship with nature. Because I do think um, and I'm, I don't, it's been a long time since I've seen the burning times, but I'm sure she talks about the healers were working very closely with nature. It wasn't just yeah. moving through your body. You're working with your natural systems like that are around That's you. Right. right? And yeah. so all of that was taken away from people put into, and I'm talking about European people of European descent. So let me just clarify that put all into a church where I have the authority A father. God has the authority I will take care of everything. And all of that now is breaking down, right? It's all, as we see this relationship with the earth, we cannot, I don't know, Nina, I want to hear your thoughts about this, but my feeling is that we cannot innovate our way out of a climate crisis using our, our, our human brains alone. I can't imagine <laughs> how that's possible. And so moving into relationships seems essential for, um, any kind of survival at all. Um, and, and finding a, a warm, cozy blanket of a different sort, which actually yes. involves putting down a lot of your ideas of control. Yes. Well, I think, I mean, there's so many threads I could pull on in what you said, Liz, <laughs> and it's kind of deep stuff. Um, 
You know, I think that we are moving from an I culture to a we culture. And I think that really the, the greatest security we can hope for lies in community and in connecting not only to our human neighbors and to developing local food resilience and power supports and knowing what your watershed is and where does your water come from and how do you help secure that, but also literally cultivating relationships with the myriad species of the natural world around us and the elements. Because I think, you know, I just heard a fascinating talk by Zach Bush, who says, you know, that uh, human's greatest gift, well, human's greatest challenge is that we are the only species that creates monocultures. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the church systems, right, they tend to be not very multicultural, right? Yeah. And so this is where multiculturalism and diversity is not just a good idea. It's not just political correctness. It's about creativity and survival. Because in nature, the places of greatest innovation are the places where two or more ecosystems meet. Yes. And, you know, when we, when we stretch to connect with people who don't look like us and people who have very different backgrounds, we're actually cultivating resilience in ourselves and each other. And it, ta- it takes courage to do that. But the rewards are just immense. And really, you know, so I think, I think you're right that we're not going to innovate our way out through only our minds. I think that actually, you know, what a lot of my indigenous teachers have taught me is that often for white people, the greatest distance is the distance between mind and heart, and that we need to learn to lead from our hearts and from our bellies. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the gift of the divine feminine is learning to trust that, you know, when we meet someone, we know right away whether we have an affinity with them or whether some part of our gut says, oh, be careful, you know, we know, we can feel it. And I think that, you know, what science is proving is that there is actually a huge amount more capacity for generative energy and ideation and, you know, if you will, imagining and creativity that comes from our hearts and our guts than from our minds. So I think it's been part of the part of the imbalance of the human experiment over the last couple thousand years has been an over-reliance on thinking and not enough on feeling and intuiting and dreaming and, you know, getting, getting our minds to still so that we can sense with our bodies better. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm so glad that you named the um, the edges too. You know, like working like with the edges and the, the diversity there. And that was one of my favorite things about your book was um, some of your writing about working um, with women from different cultures and women of mm-hmm. color and some of the challenges that you had faced there. And I am wondering if you could speak to was there a process for you in terms of tuning into gender bias that also led to your understanding of racial bias and how did yes. how did that play out for you yeah 
Yeah. I mean, the dedication in my first book was my recognition that being in a female body offered me an empathic window on injustice of all kinds. Because, you know, we all know what it feels like to be treated as second-class citizens. And, you know, we have a Supreme Court now who, of course, is is relegating us back to some second-class, you know, not-in-charge-of-our-own-bodies citizens. And... Um, which is infuriating, but hopefully we're, it's going to help us rise up. And uh, so, you know, I think that, yes, there, I do think that we are creatures of empathy. We are fundamentally social creatures, which is, you know, part of what we have to remember as we cultivate ourselves to meet this time. Because honestly, Liz, I think... We're just at the beginning of a time that will be um, harder as we go along before it gets easier. And I, you know, I think that because I've been studying climate and pollution and, you know, what we've done to the earth for 30 some years. And it's tough and not easy. And we have a lot of habits to break. Yeah. You know, I just heard a geologist say every time you send a text, you're using as much energy as if you boil a cup of water. What? So, right? So because of, think of all the places it has to be beamed and back and forth and, yes. right? And, and wild. So we have all these unconscious habits that we've assumed are all okay. And in the meantime, there is amazing innovation that's coming up. You know, I also just saw scientists just created a kind of white paint that can reflect like 89% of the sun's heat to use that. on roofs, right? Yeah. So fascinating. So I think it's some combination of, you know, there's a great quote that we use in Bioneers called human ingenuity wedded to the wisdom of the wild. Mm. And nature knows how to survive. And I think it's important to say, we're not going to save the world. We're going to save ourselves, Right. Nature will survive. It may take a few million or billion years to get over us. But the question is, what can we do to strengthen our own resilience and our own um, capacity to adapt to what we've wrought and what our ancestors have wrought? And, you know, I think an awful lot of that has to do with shifting our attention from bigness to local. And, you know, getting involved in local politics and, and local support systems, local life support systems, because I love having a neighbor that I can buy eggs from. You know, I love having a, a neighborhood phone tree so that if there's a fire, we can be in touch with each other and know if there are dogs to save and all that stuff, you know. And um, so I do think I do think the answer lies in community and connection and diversity. And mm. I often feel like too much is made and too many people talk about the challenges or the difficulty of entering into diversity work and forming connections with people who are different than us. But not enough is said about the, the incredible joy and virtues of having a community of people who don't all think alike. Mm -hmm. And and who, you know, can love each other um, 
while holding our differences. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a lot of the lesson of this time in our human ecology is how do we have differences and still be able to love each other and find connection? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of your work with Bioneers has been about bringing together um, different peoples from different communities. And I'm curious um if that what that process has been like for you and your lessons, you have a, a really wonderful chapter in your book about rupture and repair. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm thinking of um, it's this patriarchal conditioning that I think we have where we got to get things right. We have to. We are responsible for other people's emotions. We're responsible for other people's experiences. Yeah. And we have to do that perfectly. And if that falls, that's on us. And so. I think particularly when I'm talking about reaching out to women who are um, black women or indigenous women or women who like we hold privilege that they don't have to step out and to acknowledge that and to reach out and to be willing to mess that up, which is almost I I would I'd love to hear your perspective on that. But I would think it's almost inevitable that we're going to mess it up because we have no practice doing so. Um, So to do that and be willing to be seen as royally messing it up and also do it in a patriarchal culture that was really hard on women for messing up in general, where none of us are immune from that. It's sticky stuff, right? And so I'm I'm curious if you could speak to how that's how that's been for you through your work with pioneers and the 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 stumbles sure. perhaps and the the evolution of that. Sure. Um well I would say first that you know, part of my own inquiry about what it has meant to uh, be a person with the privileges that our society affords those of us with white skin has been to recognize that um, I tend to assume leadership. I tend to assume that I'm uh, sort of in the um, knowledgeable position or the beneficent position and you know what i what i have found is that um it's incredibly important in reaching out to connect with people of other backgrounds to acknowledge to acknowledge my own privilege up front first of all to literally name it and say i'm working to undo this but i may make mistakes and so i'm going to ask you to be kind and forgiving up front. Um, I think also that, you know, what I've found is that I have to show up in a position of humility Mm -hmm. and with the recognition that it's no one else's responsibility to teach me. Because Mm -hmm. I think as white women, we tend to think, well, if I ask a person of color to teach me about racial justice, that I'm doing them a favor. Well, actually, no, you're asking them to do emotional labor that is hard for them. And frankly, what I found is that, you know, if we imagine taking all the times that we have felt slighted simply because of our gender, it's what in anti-racist work is called microaggressions, you know? And if you imagine putting all of those together what I, what I have learned is that, um, is that for people of color in this society, 
their experience of the microaggressions that happen to them every single day is voluminous. It's exponentially bigger than anything we can imagine mm -hmm. for the ways that we have experienced bias against us as women. And, you know, one, one African-American friend said to me, it's as if we're both scaling a mountain that's covered with ground glass and you have thick tennis shoes on and I'm barefoot. Mm. It's as if that, right, that's how I experience the inequities in our systems. Mm. And, you know, and when I hear mothers talk about how fearful they are when their kids go to the grocery store because they might get arrested for something they didn't even do or they're going to get shadowed or they're, you know, I mean, all those things, it's really devastating. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I've been very fortunate in that, you know, we, by, as pioneers as an organization, we were mentored from the very beginning by some very wise Native elders. And so it's really in our DNA to have that awareness of multiculturalism and the value of lifting up those who have been undervalued. And, you know, one of the things I write about in the book was that I had an experience of um, discovering that my awareness about racial in inequity had lived in my head but not pierced my heart. Yeah. And the moment when it pierced my heart really changed me. And it's worth reading. You know, it's a good story. I don't want to take all the time now. But, um, you know, the other thing that I would mention, Liz, in this regard is that I had an aha moment when I read a book called Women Lead the Way by a woman named Linda Tarr Whalen, W-H-E-L-A-N. And one of the things that she says in that book is that for any minority to feel fully flanked, to be able to fully express their truth, they have to achieve a benchmark of 30% of the whole. So when I read that, I suddenly realized we had been doing multicultural deep dive immersion retreats for many years. But suddenly I went back to my colleagues and I said, we have to set a minimum of 30% women of color in every cohort. And as soon as we did that, and we have to have one of three facilitators be a woman of color. And as soon as we did those two things, the quality of engagement of the whole thing completely changed. Mm. And when you think about that in relation to our current systems and structures, where we don't have 30% women in the House or Senate, we don't have 30% women in any legislative body, you know, or in C-suites or in the law, in any kind of leadership capacity. Meanwhile, all the data that's coming in around the world says that women in leadership is the best thing for climate change. It's the best thing to achieve peace and security. It's the best, you know, it's good for every single system. It alleviates poverty. It helps food security. It helps water. It helps the environment. It helps everything. And so, you know, how do we collectively take on the challenge and the beautiful vision of lifting each other up to be able to achieve that gender parity in all of our systems, because that's the world I want to work toward. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. 
And, you know, the other thing that I would just say is that I am particularly in service to indigenous women and other women of color, because I believe that in addition to all the gifts that the divine feminine confers on all of us in female bodies, and many men, by the way, in male bodies, um, that women of color have experienced hardship in ways that makes them uniquely suited to help lead us through this time of so much challenge and turbulence. And so my sense is one of the best things we can do as white women is show up in humility and servitude and say, how can I help? You tell me, what do you need? How can I help? Mm -hmm. And it's not only about money. It's about volunteering time. You know, it's about helping care for their kids or, you know, I mean, there are so many ways and every little bit counts. And I think our actions mean a lot more than our words. Yeah. Because so many of our words have been hollow promises. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're reminding me of something a friend said to me. Um, we were having philosophical conversation about um, capitalism and money and how do we think about economics in a different way. And I was thinking about something that I wanted to do and, you know, like, how do you reconcile the fact that we need money to eat and yet you don't want money to be your primary driver? And my friend was like, I just want to stop you and tell you that anything that you're trying to figure out right now, a black woman or woman of color or an indigenous woman is probably already working on it. And, um, and I think the point is not to tokenize anybody, but to say perhaps to your friends and now, or to the to the analogy that um, I think you said it was your friend, right? Who was walking on broken glass mm -hmm. versus the shoes, um, mm -hmm. being so intimately close to the problems at hand because of being affected by them so much more personally than I would yeah. have. So rather than yeah. me going out, assuming the leadership, as you said, let me try and figure yeah. out a different way to do this. <laughs> and then I shall teach you all how to do it. Recognizing that maybe somebody, <laughs> maybe somebody else has already figured it out. And go learn from them, you know, follow them, exactly. share their work, pay them whatever I can do. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I think what she actually said was, you know, white people are walking upright with thick shoes and I'm and people of color are on our hands and knees yeah. going up the same hill yeah. on broken glass yeah. with no shelter, no shield, yeah. no nothing. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and, you know, it rings true. Yeah. 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 Well, and you reference, I feel like you've referenced this multiple, you know, multiple different ways, but um, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit more about um, indigenous perspectives, how that's been a part of Bioneers and what that's been like to have mm -hmm. that wisdom guiding you. And I guess a related question to that would be around, um, you know, I think so many of us, uh, people of European descent, we look back at our traditions of origin and feel like there's not much there to guide us. And so mm -hmm. uh, I think it's almost natural to look to other cultures to say, wow, we really screwed it up. Would you please show me what to do? But there, I wonder if you could speak to that um, mm -hmm. threading the needle between um, honoring versus appropriating as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I just read the most beautiful essay and by Lila June mm -hmm. about connecting with her European ancestors because oh, she's yeah. got half European ancestry and half indigenous. <laughs> and uh, it's a beautiful thing to post for listeners. Um, you know, 
what we consider is that indigenous peoples are the first pioneers. They're the ones who have always known how to live in right relationship to the natural world and to each other. And, you know, what many people don't know is that the U.S. Constitution was actually written with guidance from the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois Six Nations Confederacy, and that they actually helped inform the the Constitution. And at that time, they met with those elders and they said, where are your women? How can your women not be involved in this? And this thing of slavery, it's going to bite you in the ass one day. You need to deal with this. And of course, they didn't or didn't until much later. And, you know, in the in the tradition of the Haudenosaunee, the women actually select the male leader for the nation. And they select them by watching the boy children and seeing which of them has the qualities of the awareness of the good of the whole, of the empathy, of the caring, of the kindness that they believe is necessary for the leadership for the tribe. And they select that leader, and they also have the authority to rescind his leadership if he's ever not performing well. Um, so there are so many ways. I mean, I, I think I talk about this some in the book, that there are examples of social structures that we can learn from, like the four societies that the Okanagan people do. And, you know, that's a, that's a system. You asked earlier about systems. What do I mean by that? That's a way of thinking about who we are as human beings. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a good time to be thinking about who we are as human beings because our old definitions aren't working so well in relation to the world. So, um, you know, there's that. There's the social ecology. There's also um, tradition. what's called traditional ecological wisdom, which is how do we relate to the soil and fire and air and water and those systems that, you know, in traditional ecological knowledge, um, you don't harvest uh, medicines from a plant before you pray and ask its forgiveness, ask its willingness. You make an offering to the plant, and you very consciously take only what you can use and not more than the plant can regenerate. And that's a huge body of agricultural wisdom that we don't even remotely have, right? Right. You know, and, and they know how to, how to cultivate an ecosystem to optimize for diversity, which is what we have to do right now. And so there is so much to be learned from them. And how do we learn from their principles without doing cultural appropriation? Yeah. Well, some of it is about educating ourselves. Yeah. You know, I just saw an amazing show on MSNBC last night. I'm sure folks can look it up online called The Culture is Indigenous Women. And it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, part of what we have to learn is things like Native peoples are not one group. There are over 570 federally recognized tribal nations in this country, and a lot more that are not yet federally recognized. And each of those nations has their own culture, and each of them have been through their own historical experience. 
and and some are matriarchal and some are not, and some have been more more uh, affected by colonialism and and capitalism and uh, Catholicism. So it's it's a hugely diverse realm. We have to not stereotype them. We have to not assume that it's their job to teach us. And we have to educate ourselves and recognize that they are some of the most effective defenders of uh, land and water and human safety right now that exist on the planet. And they're also defending um, most of the world's last remaining areas of biodiversity. And so... Um, I think it's possible to learn from their principles, to learn from their cosmology, to learn from how they relate to each other and the world, um, and not to trivialize or stereotype them, not to assume we know, to show up in real humility. I think, again, that's part of the curse of white supremacy culture, is to imagine that we know. And actually, there is deep, deep wisdom in all of their cultures and to show up in service and humility and curiosity, um, I think is the best thing we can do. And not wear feathers and, you know, and support their arts and their cultures without, and recognize that culture is appropriation. So, you know, it's a tricky thing. Um, I try to not wear native jewelry unless it's vintage or been gifted to me. Yeah. Or I'm supporting a native artisan. And yes. all of those things are fine. But to not dress like an Indian, you know, and to and to focus more on on behavior than on costume or uh, affect. Yeah. Yeah. That's so all so helpful. Um, and the Coalition of Natives and Allies that I met, well, there's so many organizations you can turn to, but that mm. one that I mentioned that I'm going to put in the show notes, you can, they've got mm. some great recommendations. If there's any parents out there who want to champion some things at your children's schools, they've got some good suggestions mm. there on, on things to look at too. I also think of appropriation really intersecting with um, capitalism and what mm -hmm. I, and, and trying to sell teachings mm -hmm. from another mm -hmm. person's sacred traditions that to me is also yes. it's really like a, a no-no like it's um I mean unless you've got permission or you know whatever everything is there's always different circumstances but that to me also feels like it's a it, you're really you're getting into some um not yeah. okay territory I mean most of the native people that I know reject the word shaman it's yes. not okay with them, you know? It's within their cultures that they have healers or medicine people. But, you know, also that if you're quoting somebody or sharing something that you learned from a Native person, give them credit for it. Name them. Mm -hmm. That's really important. You don't borrow people's information without giving them credit. And often asking free, informed, and, and prior consent is really important. Like, would it be okay if I quote you on that? If you're writing something that you learn from a Native person, that's really important too. And, you know, for parents out there, we also have beautiful materials on the Bioneers website about Thanksgiving. Uh, there's a Thanksgiving book you can share with your kids and Thanksgiving rituals and how to reframe Thanksgiving because it's a very different story than most of us learned. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Okay. I'm going to make sure I get that. I've got a lot of things to put in the show notes for you, you all. So <laughs> be sure to actually visit them for this episode. Okay. I have one last question for you. Cause I knew this was going to go really fast, Nina. Um, but one of the things that you write about in your book is the importance of stories that we are seeding. Mm. And mm. you, you write about how, and I think you quoted Charles Eisenstein, like we're, we're living in between stories right now, or we're, um, you know, like the stories that we've told, I literally look at this with my kids and like the movies, they're super into Star Wars right now. <sighs> and there's some good messages to Star Wars. There mm-hmm. are. And yet mm-hmm. my heart is just like, Oh my God, can we not figure out a way to solve our problems without death and war? Like everything yeah. that we think is bad, yeah. we try to kill. Yeah. So I guess my final question for you is what story or stories do you feel like through Bioneers and through your presence in the world, you're you're trying to seed or you're, you're envisioning for mm-hmm. us and for future generations? Just a light question to end us up on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean... Their stories of interconnection mm-hmm. is the truth. And there are a bunch of them out there, and we're all co-inventing them all the time. I think we have to actually, it's important that we reimagine what it means to be a leader, what it means to be an activist, what it means to be an artist. Because I believe we're all leaders and activists and artists. And you know, we're all storytellers. And the beautiful stories that I love are like, you know, Whale Rider and um, that incredible story about the Eagle Huntress. And, right? And, um, you know, I war is the greatest single contributor to climate change. Mm. And so we have to lift up the stories of co-evolution, of how it's not one hero, it's a group of heroes, right? And it's collaborating with other species. It's learning and being with other species. You know, the James Cameron movies are a good example of some of that, although they're also war, you know, and conflict. But but I think, and, and some of the Pixar movies do that too. And I love them, you know? Mm-hmm. What's that one that's in and out, inner and outer? Um, oh, inside out or I mean? something like yes, that. Yes, inside yes. out. It's a beautiful story. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think we need to embrace the stories that integrate core spiritual principles of the divine feminine and inclusivity and valuing and, and revering diversity and the magic of, and mystery of nature. Because we have to lift up for our children and for each other all the ways that nature is not a thing, but is our home. And our home that is filled with four billion years of wisdom and adaptive, resilient brilliance. And that science is only beginning to barely scratch the surface of understanding. Mm. And so I think, I think we need to lift the stories of humility and of kindness and of co-creativity. And, you know, my husband and partner wrote a beautiful short poem about pioneers that for me kind of encapsulates it, which is, it's all alive, it's all intelligent, it's all relatives. Mm -hmm. And really how different 
when we think of this tree that we love in our yard or the plant that's growing that we that we are you know that's perceiving us even as we're loving it what happens when we start to pour our love and affection through our feet when we're walking on the earth we cultivate relationship it's a ritual that cultivates relationship and i think that's one of the healthiest things we can do for coming home to ourselves and coming home to the earth and coming home to each other. Mm -hmm. Mm. Thank you so much for bringing that all the way back around too, with our, (laughs) with our home to her. That was, that was beautiful. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Nina. What a gift to be in conversation with you. Um, I feel like we could have kept talking for hours, but this was so rich and so (laughs) nourishing to my soul. So thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a joy to be with you and your listeners, Liz. Mm-hmm. Thank you for cultivating this beautiful community mm-hmm. that's so needed at this time. Mm, thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, as I'm so grateful that you're here and that you want to tune in. And um, as always, if you like the show, you can leave it a favorable review. You can um, tell your friends about it. You can subscribe to it. You can do all those things. And until next time, I hope you take really good care of yourself and I will speak to you again soon. Home to Her is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine And you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at Home to Her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon. Mm -hmm.